together. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find Genesis chapter 45. First, let me say, if you're visiting with us and you want to get connected uh, to our church, we've got a connect desk in the back. There's a red card that says get connected. If you'll fill that out and leave that uh, in the bucket, we'd love to get connected with you in the days ahead, whether you've just got questions about uh, faith or you're ready to take the plunge into being a part of our church family, whatever that is, I'd encourage you to just get connected, ask questions, and that's one of the easiest ways that you can uh, get in touch with uh, somebody that way. Genesis chapter 45, and let me say the interesting thing about this passage is that in the movies, we're, we're used to the climax coming toward the end, right? Don't we learn in English class that the story always has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that storytelling is typically a straight line. But in the Hebrew mind, storytelling, the climax, the big reveal, the height of the story actually comes in the middle. Stories are more like arrows or mountains with a peak in the middle and two points that come down, usually in mirroring fashion from each other. If you want your sort of Bible nerd info, that formation, that little mountain formation is called a chiasm, and they're all over the Bible. And this moment in the Joseph story is the chiasm, the, the climax, the point in which all of it's building toward. The brothers have sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph has been exalted to be governor over Egypt. The family has now come to Egypt looking for food in the famine, and the brothers have changed. The very last chapter, Judah even offered himself as a substitute on behalf of Benjamin. And over the next two weeks, really come to the, the big reveal, the surprise, the climax, the arrowhead of the Joseph story in Genesis 45 and 46. And the lesson is a profound one. We begin to see that the Joseph story is a story all about true forgiveness. In fact, the title, the point, and the title of our message today is, How Can I Know If I Have Truly Forgiven Someone? So with all that in mind, let's look now at Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But the brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors." So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord over all the land of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me 
at me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come. The Jew in your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see that the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brother away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, when he said to them, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their, of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is the word of God. This is a moving scene, isn't it? The betrayed brothers are forgiven and embraced by, as family. The brothers are shocked and terrified because the brother they thought was dead is standing there alive, a terrified, terrified in a sort of resurrection from the dead kind of way. He who was once dead is now alive. And in this passage, we get the answer to one of the most common questions I get as a pastor. How do I know if I've truly forgiven someone? And I think it's such a prominent question because we've all been hurt, right? And we've all hurt others. And we're all looking for the sort of movie-like restoration that Jacob and his family has here. I think we're all wanting this, but if we can be honest, forgiveness often doesn't look like this. We don't often get our movie-like, dramatic, happily ever after because True forgiveness isn't primarily about reaching some emotional platitude or some sort of emotional, warm, fuzzy feeling. 
Forgiveness is primarily an objective outlook on the person or the events that caused you harm. It's not about getting to some feeling to feel as if you've forgiven them. It's an objective outlook of how you look and understand the situation or the people who caused you harm. And in this passage, we see three marks, three signs, three statements of true forgiveness. Things I hope we can measure our own forgiveness by. Here's the first thing we see. The first statement. I have truly forgiven when I am pursuing reconciliation, not revenge. I have truly forgiven when I am pursuing reconciliation and not revenge. Notice that Joseph had every right to be angry with his brothers. They sold him. They left him, and it's decades later, and no one came looking for him. And Joseph is now the right-hand man in Egypt. And friends, he has the power to inflict far more pain on his brothers than they ever did on him. The brothers bound Joseph, and Joseph now has servants who can bind the brothers. Joseph was sold, and friends, Joseph could have easily had his brothers sold into a far worse place right? They spared his life to make a buck. Joseph could have easily taken these brothers' lives and still made a buck. But Joseph didn't harbor bitterness or revenge. But that also doesn't mean that Joseph was some stoic, emotionless robot. Because forgiveness doesn't mean you aren't still hurt or emotional about a situation. Look what happens in verse 1. Look at this. Judah's just offered to take the place of Benjamin, and we see that Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph is overcome with emotions, and rightly so. Imagine all that has been flowing through his mind through the last chapters as his brothers stood there before him, and he now sees that his family has changed. Judah and his brothers now are not primarily focused on themselves, but they are more selfless And he cries out and reveals to them that he is their long-lost brother, and they weep aloud. So many of us are tempted to think that if someone is an emotional wreck about what happened to them, they must not be over it. But hear me, to be human is to have emotion, to weep, to break down even, and to hurt. (laughs) Friends, emotions, somehow we've got this idea in the church that the only place it's okay to be emotional is whenever we're singing a song to the Lord. But man, if, if you're upset outside of there, you get a little sad about something. Well, we don't, we don't want to ever do that because that's uncomfortable. And yet Joseph here models for us that he can still truly forgive these folks and yet still be emotional about what happened to him because these emotions by themselves were not bad. The thing to watch out for is what they might cause you to do. Joseph didn't let his hurt foster bitterness and resentment and revenge, but rather it causes him to stand before them and in love to forgive them. And as the brothers stand there, 
The word dismayed could literally be translated terrified of wrath. And I would be too, right? He's there. He can do, he has all the forces of the Egyptian army before them. And they sort of cower in fear. And look what Joseph does, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. First, Joseph comes to them and notice that Joseph uses manners. <laughs> First place to begin, right? He says, come near to me, please. Friends, you're not going to be scared of anybody who uses please whenever they have you to come over to them, right? He's wanting them to know that I mean you no harm. Don't be afraid or dismayed. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to protect you. The famine is raging and you and the family need a place to stay. Let me be a place of refuge for you. And he wanted to reconcile with them. He says, come near to me. Stay close. Don't go far. Sure, we have issues to work out, but we can only work those out face to face. I'm sure if Joseph had a smartphone in these days, he'd be saying, don't text me about it. Let's actually meet and talk about these things. And he pursues reconciliation. And that's how we know that true forgiveness is being displayed here. And I also want to point out here that the relationship's being reconciled, but it is not going back to how it was. It's becoming something far better than it was. See, one of the things that people misunderstand about forgiveness is many people think that forgiveness means going back to how things were, that forgiveness is reversal When forgiveness is not reversal, forgiveness is renewal. Forgiveness always brings recreation. See, Joseph is no longer the 17-year-old boy they sold into slavery. He's now the governor of the nation in which they were strangers. They literally can't go back to how it was. They can only start new in the situation that they have. The brothers aren't the same. None of them are the same. And so forgiveness doesn't make things go in reverse. It makes things reconcile, and reconciliation always involves changes in one or both of the parties involved. Isn't this true with your forgiveness from God? Now hear me. In that relationship, God's never changing. He's never done anything wrong, right? He's perfect and holy and righteous. But isn't it true that when God forgives you, he also changes you? (laughs) Aren't you, when you're reconciled to God, you're not just in a restored relationship. He actually gives you the spirit and a new nature so that you no longer live as sinners but as saints. True forgiveness means pursuing reconciliation, and that means renewal and recreation, but never revenge. This brings us to the second statement of true forgiveness here. We see second, I've truly forgiven when I have a perspective of providence and not pointlessness. So we see first that it means pursuing reconciliation and not revenge, but it also means having a perspective of providence and not 
pointlessness. Now, I don't think we use the word providence much in our day and age, and I think we should. This is one of those old dead guy words that I want to resurrect. I love the old dead guys knew a thing or two, right? And so providence is simply a big word for God's provision, or seeing God's hand in all situations, or seeing Romans 8.28 as a banner waving over your situation. And Joseph is at this point in his life. Notice in the passage how he repeatedly points to God as the one behind it all. Look at verse 5. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. See it four times in these short verses. He says that all of this was from the hand of God. God had a purpose, and what the brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. His suffering was not purposeless. It was from the providence of God. God was behind the scenes, orchestrating it all together for something greater. He recognized what the later Puritan John Flavel would say. I love this. John Flavel's famous for saying that life is like a Hebrew word, best read backward. And if you don't get that, in in English, you read left to right, right? But Hebrew, you actually have to read right to left. It's backward from our perspective, right? And so he says that your life is best understood in the rear view mirror and not in the windshield. You do better looking back and seeing than you do looking forward and seeing. And so we must look backward and see God's hand to a greater or lesser extent of clarity. And friends, there are going to be many of us who may never arrive at the level of clarity that Joseph had for his life. But that doesn't mean you can't begin to trace his purpose and his plan. And even when you can't do that, you can still trace God's heart. We can only do this when we widen our view beyond ourselves. We must be very careful to look around rather than staying looking in when we're suffering. Let me say this. There is definitely a time for mourning, introspection, self-focus. There's time for that in your suffering. But there is a time when you must lift your eyes to heaven and then lower your eyes to what God is doing in the world around you. So I want to encourage you. When was the last time you took inventory on what was going, around, going on around you rather than what was simply going on in your little end of the world? And by inventory, I don't mean going on Facebook and seeing what's going on in other people's lives. Can I tell you something? What's going on in other people's lives, Facebook is not a reliable guide for what's going on there. You're getting people's snapshots, and then you're beginning to compare your behind-the-scenes to their greatest hits, right? And you can't live your life by snapshots. You need the whole picture. 
And this passage is an invitation to seek a grander view of how God might be using your suffering for greater purposes. And it's only by doing this that we can truly begin to forgive those who have afflicted us with such suffering. See it, Joseph's looking back going, if my family didn't get to Egypt when the famine hit, we would not have survived. If I hadn't been brought into Egypt, God's whole promise would have been extinguished and the nation that would come through us would be no more. But God sent me into Egypt by the hand of my brothers so that I might be the savior of the brothers who sold me out. What a perspective that God is doing far more than your moment that you find yourself in. God is doing 10,000 things, and you may only be aware of three of them. In verse 9, we see that he sends the brothers back home to get their father Jacob and to bring him back. And Joseph hugs them, loves them, and even as the Egyptians provide for them, look what the Egyptian servants say, verse 20. Look at this. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Friends, they went from famine to the best that Egypt had to offer. And God was all over this. Friends, Joseph had forgiven the brothers because he had a perspective of God's providence. He saw that there was purpose behind this. God was using this. This wasn't purposeless or pointless. And finally, we see the third statement that shows us what true forgiveness looks like. I have truly forgiven when I have a posture of blessing not battle. So first, we we saw how it's about reconciliation, renewal, not revenge. It's about having a perspective of providence, the big picture. God is working in this, not that it's pointless. And finally, we we look at, at a posture of blessing, not a posture of battle. Look at verse 21. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. First, as Father's Day is approaching, you can begin to look here. Maybe your dad wants 10 donkeys loaded with all the good things of Egypt, right? Maybe those are the gifts that you should send. But in these days, this was incredible blessing that's being sent with them. Joseph blessed them. Egypt blessed them. And he celebrates that good things are happening to them rather than bad. And notice what he says on, uh, whenever they depart. He says, don't quarrel on the way. Remember not to fight. Get along. I think this is the ancient equivalent of watch for deer. You all understand. You only say that to people you like, right? You understand. I understand. Or, or text me when you get home. This is a similar thing he's doing here. Be, he, desired e- good. he did not desire evil for them, but good. And when they departed and got back home from Egypt with all this stuff, look what they say to Jacob, their father, verse 25. So they went up to Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. 
But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is such noticeable blessing, such noticeable blessing to elderly Jacob. He says, I got to get up immediately and head to Egypt. Pack up. Let's go. Let's get in the minivan and go. Joseph didn't desire evil for what happened to them, but good. And it was such a good that they just had to get back as soon as they could. He would provide for the family and they would be brought back together. No more battles, only blessings. And when you think about those who hurt you, what is your posture toward them? What do you wish for them? What would you do if you had the power to do anything to them or for them? Let me illustrate the opposite of this. What does a posture of battle look like? This is actually something I mentioned this past week on Facebook. Some of you know that uh, uh, my friend Jameis Edwards, who's been here and preached before. He pastors in Owensboro. One of the things he does to illustrate his sermons is he's famous for his country music moment of the week, right? He'll he'll always throw out country music to illustrate a point. And so let let me give you a country music moment of the week. This week, have you ever wanted to do this to somebody? Y'all might recognize that is the car from Carrie Underwood's Before He Cheats video. And friends, if you've ever enacted that song in your daydreams, you probably have a posture of battle. Friends, if you, if, if there is nothing that says bitterness and battle like destroying a guy's car. And that certainly doesn't justify uh, the cheater in the situation either. But Hear this, if you want to put your key in the side of his four-wheel drive, you've not forgiven him yet. I just want you to know that. If you're driving down the road jamming, just dreaming about doing that to him or his car, you've got the posture of battle and not the posture of blessing. Let me illustrate for you the posture of blessing. The Apostle Paul actually illustrates this for us in Romans chapter 12. I love this. Romans chapter 12. Look at this. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Leave it up there. We'll look at it more in a second. But he says, leave room for God to destroy his truck. Sometimes God sends through some bad weather, and it just so happened that he dropped the tree on just that guy's truck, right? Leave room for the wrath of God. God will repay. Rather than leaving, living in an ongoing battle, we're called to blessing. Look what he says next, verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He says, you want to stick it to them? Don't destroy their car. Buy them dinner. (laughs) Bless them and love them anyway. He says, that'll show them. And by doing so, you're raining hot coals down on them and that dang pickup truck that you just can't stand. And he says, you may just wake them up to the evil that they've done. (laughs) Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Another way to say, two wrongs don't make a right, but a right can correct a wrong. Aren't we glad that God doesn't respond to our sin the way country music singers respond to lion-cheating men? 
I'm very glad that God does not respond that way to my sin when I've hurt and wronged him. Because here's the point. All our forgiveness must be rooted in the fact that God has forgiven us. The only way that you can forgive like this is because God has forgiven you of far more. God isn't asking you to do something that he hasn't done to the, to the one millionth degree greater than you. God desires to give the blessing of salvation rather than to be in an eternal battle with us. God desires to show us his providence in our life rather than leaving us to feel pointless and in the dark. And God desires for us to be reconciled to him rather than display revenge. And friends, all of this is clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ and in the Lord's Supper that we celebrate this morning. Jesus has taken upon himself the wrongs we committed against him. He died our death, and in a greater way than Joseph, he rose from the dead. He rose literally, truly, miraculously to be king over all so that we might be restored to God. Here's how the New Testament puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And look at some of the words that repeat themselves here. I love this. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in this supper, we look toward the work of Jesus It's a message of recreation for those who are in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And we proclaim a message of reconciliation, not just forgiveness between man and man, but we proclaim to the world to be reconciled to God for the one who knew no sin has been punished as if he was a sinner on our behalf so that in him we might be forgiven and become the righteousness of God. What glorious forgiveness. And it's out of that forgiveness that we offer this invitation. We're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do that a little bit different. We're going to have a a time where we're going to have a short reflection from Gary, and we're going to pass the elements and have a song playing to reflect on. But I I want to say this before we do that. I want to remind us that this supper is for those who Jesus has recreated. It's for his followers but it's also for those who have been reconciled to their brother or sister who sat with them today. Or even those who have been reconciled to brothers and sisters who may not sit next to them today. There's actually a place on your notes, and you don't have to show the world what you say. You can even sort of fold it away from your neighbor if you need to. But there's a place there. If you have unresolved conflict with someone, I would encourage you to write the name down because there's just something about writing it down, making it clear, letting yourself know it. And to set, to be intentional, to be reconciled to that person, to forgive them or to go to them for forgiveness, whether they're here or not. 
But for those who have not experienced recreation and reconciliation in Jesus, I would invite you to just let the juice and the cup, let the, let the bread and the juice just pass you by and to do that. Let, spend this time doing business with God. To think about the incredible forgiveness and recreation and the incredible love of God for you. And as we prepare to take the supper, let us prepare our hearts and let us pray together. Father in heaven, you are good. And we are thankful that you're good. We're thankful that you're a forgiving God, giving endless mercy and forgiveness to your people, but not holding any guiltless who, use, who, 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 who walk in a way that is not pleasing to you. I ask now that you would let your forgiveness just shine forth bright to any here who do not know you and have not received it, that they would not wait another moment to call out to you in faith and to have you come down and forgive them and transform them and have them be reconciled by grace through faith alone, not through anything we can do, but solely by your grace. And I ask that you would have your people here today to forgive whoever it is, whatever they've done, Lord, and to do it because of the great forgiveness that you've shown to us. As we prepare to take the supper, I pray you'll bless the meditation that's given. I pray you'll bless the reflection that we do. And I ask and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. that brings us life, paid the price.
Table love.